0: The shortest uh, verse in the Bible is in John chapter 11, and it's in verse 35. It's literally a noun and a verb. It's two words and a period. It says, Jesus wept. If you go back and you look at John chapter 11, what you find is a scene in which Jesus had received word that a good friend of his by the name of Lazarus had died. And so Jesus gathers his disciples together and they journey to this location where the body of Lazarus was. And as Jesus arrived there, what he found was a scene in which people were mourning over the loss of a loved one, a loss over a dear friend of his. And it says that Jesus began to weep or that Jesus began to cry. You know, my grandmother passed away um, last month and I was at that funeral and And I I witnessed a lot of people crying. And I felt the the pain of losing a loved one. And if you've lived any length of time, you've lost someone or you've been to a funeral and you've experienced that. And you see the grief that people share and the agony that they share at the loss of a loved one. And Jesus, as he witnessed this and being tenderhearted and being loved and being empathetic as he was, he began to cry. You see, those that he cared about and those that he loved in pain... And he began, the the human side of him, the emotion of him, he began to cry and began to weep. And Jesus there performed probably one of the most amazing miracles ever recorded, I think, in which he restored life to the body of Lazarus. And there was a group of people there who had witnessed this. And to say that this was astonishing would somewhat be an understatement, I'm sure. But some of those people who witnessed this amazing event were some of the Jewish leaders of that day, some of the Pharisees. And they were people who were constantly trying to trap Jesus. They were constantly trying to ensnare him. And once they saw this, they knew that they unequivocally could not compete with him. And for some time, they had been developing a conspiracy, a plot to take his life. But it was at this point in time when they realized that they were actively and aggressively going to kill him. And Jesus knew this. And so our series has been about and is going to be about this point in time in which Jesus (laughs) realizes in John chapter 11 that they're actively trying to kill him and his journey all the way to Jerusalem and to the cross in which he would give his life. And so as we go through this series, this is literally the last days of Jesus as he's journeying towards his death. And the things that we see that he, the people that he encounters, and the sermons that he teaches, and the things, uh, and, the, and the experiences that he shares. Literally are his last days. And this morning we find ourselves in Luke the 13th chapter, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through verses 30. And if you look in Luke chapter 13 and verse 22 and verse 30, you see it says, and he went on his way, through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And so what I just said, that he was on his way to Jerusalem, we see that Luke records this here. And we find that he's presented with a very fascinating question. And the question was this in the preceding verse. And someone said to him, Lord, those who are saved be few. (coughs) Do you think that that's a, a fair question? In other words, in a, in a general sense, Lord, will, how many people are going to be saved? I think that's a pretty fair and legitimate question. You know, I don't know exactly who asked this question. There were a number of people who followed Jesus, some of his disciples, who had given everything that they had, their lives, and dedicated their lives to leaving their jobs, their occupations, and following him all over. And they ask a question, Is there are going to be a lot of people saved? And what we're going to focus in this morning is the response that Jesus gives them. And if you look in verse 23, Jesus says this, excuse me, 24. He says, "Strive <coughs> excuse me. --Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many I tell you will seek to enter, it will not be able." And if you look here, Jesus responds to this question, and he just does not simply give the result to them. He doesn't just say, yes, there'll be a few people saved, or no, there won't be a few people saved, but he gives this illustration or this narrative or uh, this description about this narrow passageway and that there are going to be all these people who try to get into this passageway, but they're not going to be able to. And so in a roundabout way, what he tells them is, yes, there's only going to be a few people saved. And I'm not a betting man, but I would tell you that if I was among that audience, I would probably say that that's not the response that they wanted to hear. And if I'm being truthful today, it's probably not the response that you and I want to hear, that only a few people will be saved. And I want to ask you, why do you think that somebody would ask Jesus that question? Do you think that you would have asked Jesus that question, will there be a few people saved? You know, I I think it's a fair and legitimate question, and if I think I would have thought about it at that time, I might have asked Jesus that question. But I know myself, and I know why I would probably ask that question, because the reason, the motive behind me probably asking that question is this. uh, What are my odds? What's the probability? Lord, what's the ratio? Because why? Because is it really worth my investment? Is it really worth my time to sacrifice to be a Christian if there's only going to be a small percentage saved? Is that something I really want to do? Do I really want to be committed to that? And I think that's why it's a fair and legitimate question. And this is the response that Jesus tells them, is that there's going to be people who want to seek Jesus, who want to be a Christian, but they're not going to be able to. You know, I have a guitar. It sits in my closet about 99.9% of the time. I don't hardly get it out. You know why? I want to be a good guitar player. I want to play the guitar like Joe Walsh, but the reality of it is I will never be as good as Joe Walsh is. Joe Walsh has been playing the guitar for 60 years. He's been a member of some of the most notorious rock bands. But I'll tell you, I would never be as good as he is. No matter the scales that I learn, the chords, the time, the practice, I'll never be that good. Yeah, I'll get it up and pick at it for a while, but the fact of the matter is, is if I can't really be as good as Joe Walsh, I really just don't have an interest in picking it up. And I think that maybe, potentially, that was maybe the motive of why this person asked this question, is, Jesus, how many people are going to be saved? Is it really worth my time and investment? Or maybe it was just out of sheer curiosity, Lord, how many people will be saved? So many people are going to seek Jesus, but here Jesus says that not very many people are going to be able to find him. And I will tell you that that sounds discouraging when you read about a narrow passageway, and a narrow door, or a narrow gate as sometimes it's referred to. But let me tell you this morning is that you and I should get on our ever-loving knees and with every breath that we have in our lungs, thank God Almighty above, that He even provided a door for us. God didn't have to do that. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that God commendeth us, even that while we were still yet sinners, that Christ died for us. You look in Colossians It says, And you were sometimes alienated, and you were enemies in your own mind by your wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. God could have destroyed every one of us. Every one of us. But because of who he is, because of his love, of his compassion, of his forgiveness, and for the nature and the merciful God that he is, he provided you a door. And it doesn't matter how narrow it is. He can provide it how narrow he wants to. Because he's the one who gave his own child for us to murder so that we could be reconciled to him. So let's talk a little bit about this narrow gate You know, Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. He reiterated this principle when he says, Enter into the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so here's the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5 and it concludes in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus talks about all these great things about how you and I are to live our lives and how to treat other people and how to respond to certain situations. And he gives all these practical ways about how to be in the kingdom of God. And then he gets in chapter 7 and he kind of concludes it all. And in the summation of it all, he talks about this narrow gate. You know, one thing is for certain about the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a sermon that you and I can listen to or we can read and we can sit back and say, well, I really admire that for its ethical principles. That's not what it is. It's a call to action for you and I. And he sums it up in chapter 7 there. And he says, look, there's this narrow gate. And there are going to be people who try to get into it. And if you want to get into it, you've got to strive to get into it. And you've got to be active. And you've got to contend. And you've got to fight to get into it. It's a call to action. It's the climactic part of that sermon that calls you into the kingdom of God. And what he says, you can do these things. You can be in the kingdom of God. Or you could not be in the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is he's talking to a group of Jewish people there. People who were religious. And so the contrast on the narrow gate is not the principle of here's Christians and people who claim to be religious and here's the unwashed masses who are the atheists and the agnostics of the world and the people who don't know God. It's not a contrast between those two. It's a contrast between those people who profess to be Christians, who profess to be religious, who profess to serve God, and those who are actually going to find the truth through Jesus Christ. And that's the distinction. It's the religious versus those who will be able to find the truth that Jesus commands of us. If you go down a few verses in Matthew chapter 7, in verse 22 through 23, it says that many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, did we not teach in your name? Did we not cast out devils? And did we not do many wondrous works? And so here the, the illustration is there's going to be people who stand before God on the day of judgment who got up in a sermon and preached in the name of Jesus Christ. There's going to be people who profess that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. There's going to be people who, who went out and did many great works. And the fact of the matter is, is he's going to say that Jesus is going to say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, ye who work iniquity. That's what he's talking about. That's the call to action on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a very sobering thing for you and I as people who show up on Sunday mornings and profess to be Christians and live life. Are we those type of people? And that's something that should grab your attention. That's something that should grab my attention. There are two doors. There's a narrow door and there's a wide door. And both of those doors point to heaven. Both of those doors point to God. Both of those doors point to salvation. Both of those doors point to glory. But the reality is, is both of those don't go there. Just one. Just one. And so what you and I should be doing is evaluating ourselves to see if that we have entered into that narrow gate and if we are staying on that narrow path that Jesus talks about. And what's interesting to me again about this is that Jesus says that we need to strive to enter into that gate. Strive. You know what that tells me? That tells me by default you and I weren't born into it. That it's something that requires action on your part and on my part. If you look at the Hebrew word there, "strive," it means it's translated "agzami." It means to contend or to struggle to battle, and literally that's what Jesus is saying, is that we should be fighting, we should be actively engaging in a conflict to enter into the kingdom of God. And I don't believe the picture of that is us just waking up in our mundane lives and showing up to church on Sunday and maybe a midweek Bible study. Is that the, is that the representation of actively fighting? Those things are great, and we should be doing those things, and we are called to do those things, and we're called to, to worship in that manner if we, if we can. But it's an active fight mentally, a spiritual warfare day to day that engages us, that calls us to be separated from the world. And so what is this narrow gate or what is this narrow door? The Bible tells us in John, excuse me, The Bible says in John chapter 10 and verse 9, this is what Jesus said. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. And so Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the gate. Well, great. That's it, right? We've all been baptized. We're all Christians, and we've we've found the narrow way. But it's more than that. We may have found the way through Jesus Christ. We may be immersed from, in, for baptism. But now we've got to maintain the narrow path that Jesus talks about. And the fact of the matter is, is most people do not have the endurance. Most people do not have the patience to take that walk of faith. Many people ran up to Jesus in his day and go, oh, Jesus, Jesus, guess what? We're going to follow you. And Jesus said, that's great. Okay, just let's, let's go. And he said, just so you know, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. Many people would run up to Jesus and say, Jesus, we're going to follow you. And he would say, let's go. And they'd say, okay, well, let me just get back home. My father's passed away. Let me, let me go bury dad. And Jesus says, we ain't got time. i got places to be. I've got sermons to preach and I've got souls to save. So if you're coming, come on now. People would run up to Jesus and say, Jesus, we're going to follow you. And Jesus would say, come on, let's go. And they would say, okay, let me run home and pack my bags and say bye to mom and dad. And Jesus said, we ain't got time. If you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. The fact of the matter is, is that most people will not stay on that course. Most people do not have the patience. Most people will take the wide path that Jesus talked about. Why? And Jesus told it why it was wide. It's because it was easy. It was easy. And the fact of the matter is is that being a Christian and living a Christian lifestyle is not easy. Now, we don't follow Jesus with a a map, uh, you know, our our, our tent, and we we don't. We face a a much different dynamic in the 21st century in the world that we live. But if we're actively living as Christians and we're doing what God has called us to do, it's not an easy lifestyle. And the fact of the matter is, is that most people will not be able to maintain it. God did not set up this principle or this illustration of the narrow gate because he wanted to save a select few. That God set up in heaven and said, you know what, I want want a VIP of just a few people and we'll keep everyone else. And so the principle of the narrow gate is this. We'll set up large barriers and large perimeters and we'll have this small door and only a select few can get in. The principle behind the narrow gate is that it's narrow because most people will not obey what Jesus has told them to do. And it's hard. It's hard. And because it's hard, we as people take the natural path and it's easy and not do what he says. And so that's why it's narrow. It's not that God wants to keep a lot of people out of heaven. The Bible teaches that God wants all mankind to be saved. And there will be a lot of people in heaven. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 13 and you keep reading there, it says there's going to be people from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. There's going to be numerous, numerous hosts in heaven. Heaven's going to be a great place. A place that's indescribable for you and I. There's going to be a lot of people there. But there's going to be a lot of people who try to get there who are not going to be there. There's going to be a lot of people who will raise raise their hand and tell you, oh, I associate myself with Christianity. There's a lot of people who will raise their hand and say, oh, I believe that Jesus is my Lord. There's a lot of people who will tell you all that. Many people. And the fact of the matter is, is there are many people who believe that, who won't be going to heaven. Who won't be going to heaven. In Romans chapter 10, in verse 2, it says, They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Referring back to Luke chapter 13, if you look in verses 25 through 27, it says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and he will answer I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, He ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. But he will say, I will tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all who work evil. And that's very scary. That's very scary that people are going to stand before the Lord and they're going to say, We did all these things and and Jesus is going to tell them, I don't know you. I don't know you. In John chapter two, Jesus was at the Feast of the Passover and it says that he began to perform some miracles there, and people began to notice this, and they said, "You know, I, I think I'd really like what Jesus is selling." And they, they kind of wanted to be around Jesus and be associated with Jesus. You know what it says? It says that He did not entrust himself to them, because he saw how superficial they were. You know what it means to be superficial? It means to be lacking. It means to be shallow, insufficient. Not fully or deeply committed or invested. And Jesus saw these were the type of people. You know, I'll be honest with you, there's sometimes that I feel like maybe my faith is superficial. And that's very scary and that's very sobering. And looking back at the narrow gate has kind of reminded me just how important this principle is that Jesus taught us. Jesus wants your heart, not just on Sunday morning, but he wants it on Monday, he wants it on Tuesday, he wants it on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You know, massive groups of people would follow Jesus. They would, from time to time, kind of congregate and just kind of follow him around. And then, over a period of time, these people would kind of disperse and kind of go away. And finally, Jesus looked over to the disciples and said, will you too, will you too go away? You know what Peter told him? Lord, where are we going to go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. God doesn't want us to be half in. He doesn't want, as Mike put it one time, kicking our feet in the water. He wants us to be fully committed. He wants us to be fully obedient. And so if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, it's going to take a will to, a striving to. It's going to take the perseverance to do that. And it's going to take the commitment that you and I are going to obey what God's word says. And we do that by getting in God's word. You know, in 2 Kings chapter 22, we read of a king by the, king, by the name of King Josiah. He took reign when he was eight years old. And it says that he had started this project in which he was going to be, bring restoration to the temple, and they were going to fix the temple. And so they, they sent some people in there. You know what they found while they were in there cleaning that? They found the book of the law the thing that was supposed to be guiding them, the thing that was, that was pinned by Moses, the thing that was instruction from God that they were supposed to be guided and living by, they had lost it. They didn't even know where it was. It was buried up under the dust and the rubble of all the, all the things in the temple. They were so far removed and isolated from God. It says that Josiah realized this. That he tore his clothes. He brought a national repentance among Israel. They had gotten away from the word. They had fallen into idolatry. If you and I are going to be committed to Jesus, it's going to take us getting back into the world, back into the world, being committed, being devoted, being obedient. God is merciful. And I don't, I don't mean to give this lesson to, to scare people, but I give this lesson to, to tell you that we should be active. And I think that we do a great job. I think, that, I think that we spot on. Our worship is spot on. I think it's scriptural. I think that everything that we do is scriptural. But we need to be checking ourselves, and we need to be comparing it to the Word of God. I appreciate your attention this morning. I hope that something I've said has been of benefit to you. Um, if we uh, have one who needs a matter to bring before the congregation or one who wished to be immersed in baptism, we ask you to come as we stand and sing a song selected.